Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. So this episode is dropping almost a week after the insurrection at the Capitol. And, you know, personally, I'm still going back and forth between feeling deeply dismayed about America itself and laughing at some of what I saw last week. Last Wednesday, we all saw the goofy-looking guy in body paint and horns looking foolish. We all saw the grandma protester who looked like she was lost in the Capitol. We all saw the insurrectionist smiling and taking selfies like tourists. Some of that stuff seems totally absurd and ridiculous. But if you dig deeper, what happened last Wednesday was also very terrifying. You can juxtapose those images with other photos and videos from that day. People in tactical gear with zip ties, people who had brought pipe bombs and guns and ammo and Molotov cocktails to Washington, D.C. Memes aside, what really could have happened that day, it could have been a lot worse than what we saw. Yes, and I'll say even the images of the kind of goofy, silly people, I don't think people should take those as diminishing the seriousness and the degree to which this was all quite sinister. That is Jamel Bowie. He is a columnist at The New York Times. We have more and more information that we shouldn't take the most benign view of this, that there are people in the crowd who had some level of organization and planning and who intended to commit serious violence. They broke the glass. Everybody stay down. And this is a thing also that I think should be emphasized that in the Capitol that day was the line of succession for the presidency. So in the worst case scenario, this could have ended with the government being, as they say, uh, decapitated. I'm going to talk with Jamel this episode about the insurrection and what might happen next, particularly in the halls of Congress. But we're going to start with some history and Jamel laying out how this insurrection on democracy, we have seen this kind of thing before. This is America, after all, whether we choose to believe it or not. You know what it felt like to me? It felt like an old school lynch mob. You know, when these lynch mobs occurred decades, centuries ago, uh, all the folks that showed up there didn't come to lynch. You know, a handful of the men were going to do it, but a lot of other folks just came to watch, just came for the party, just came to have a picnic while they watched it. And there are so many folks that were at the Capitol on Wednesday who didn't come to hurt Pelosi or Pence, but they wanted to watch if it happened. Yes. And I think the analogy to a lynch mob is the right one. I think um, it's worth making analogies to the kinds of um, mobs that formed to storm state capitals and city halls during Reconstruction. I think I, I would like people to understand is that there is no clear delineation between what I'm going to call a bit and real violence, right? Mm. That mm. I'll just give an example, kind of an er example from the Reconstruction era. A group of men can get together and decide to put on some hoods and costumes to go scare off some, you know, a prosperous black farmer, or, you know, a Republican official, someone in town. And they can go just to do it, to do it, not intending to inflict any serious violence. But depending on the dynamics, the particular personalities, depending on whether they face any resistance, that lark, that bit can go on to become real. a real a real violence, right? 
And the what I wrote about in my column last week was that in Louisiana in the in 1874, specifically a group called the White League. And the White League, what a name! <laughs> they were they weren't there to just have fun, right? They they specifically formed to intimidate Republicans and freed blacks. But it was very small scale at the start, intimidating again officials, uh, a teacher. But you know they find that there's not that much resistance. And so what begins as local terror pretty quickly becomes something much larger and more organized, such that mm. by that fall, you have a, a small sort of you know battalion of 3,500 men taking the state capitol house, deposing the governor, trying to attempt um, a coup there. They even hold inauguration festivals for the guy they had picked to for be. For the guy who lost. Yeah, for the guy who <laughs> lost the previous election. And we should just pause here to like say for our listeners, you are recounting a story that feels eerily similar to what could have happened in D.C. last week. Right. 1874, in New Orleans, a white mob storms the Capitol to say, the guy who won, we don't like that, put the other guy in. And right. they did it, right? Right, and they did it. And it took about three or four days before federal troops came in and kind of forced them to stand down. But no one was punished after this, right? And the, the argument wow. in my column is that, you know, the fact that this could happen with relative impunity meant that when given an opportunity, they would do it again. And not just do it again, other people in other states would sort of take their cues and take a lead from this. And so you see throughout the Deep South, especially throughout the South, these sorts of mob actions taking place with the aim of deposing or, if not deposing, a Republican Reconstruction government, then at least terrorizing black voters, terrorizing Republican officials, and creating the conditions to oust that government by in an election, but an election tainted with you know violence and fraud. Coming up, how division might be the only way back to unity. With civil unrest, the pandemic, and the economic crisis, you want to know what's happening right when you wake up. And that's why there is Up First, the news you need in about 10 minutes from NPR News. Listen every day. You know, so the insurrection that you wrote about in 1874 in New Orleans, this white mob was trying to end what they called a Negro rule. And this was all about race. It was all about trying to end Reconstruction and keep blacks from being as free as they possibly could be. Some folks hearing this now will say, well, that is not like what could have happened at the Capitol last week. It's not about race. It's not about freeing slaves. It's about election fraud. Joe Biden is white. You know, there are still folks that might not see a through line of race in last week's events. What would you say to, the, to those who don't? You know, I, I would say that you have to take a, a more sort of expansive view of what it means to say that something is influenced by race or really influenced by racism mm. and kind of racial domination and race hierarchy and these things, which mm. is that in the New Orleans example, the governor wasn't a black guy. He was white. Um, but yeah. his political power, his political coalition rested on black voters. And in the same way, Joe Biden is a white guy, you know, kind of a prototypical, you know, old <laughs> white politician. But the coalition that brought him to power was you know disproportionately comprised of African Americans, of Hispanics, of Asian Americans, 
of a kind of a multicultural group of Americans as well as white liberals. So you have this diverse coalition. And the claim being made against Biden when there's these accusations of fraud, I mean, I think some people do literally believe that you know, millions of votes for manufacturing. But I think what you should understand it as is a claim that this coalition is not legitimate, right? That these people mm. do not count as, you know, quote, real Americans. And so the claim of fraud is really a claim about legitimacy, about who can rightfully claim the power of the state. And the mob at the Capitol was saying, well, not these people. And that's that's the through line, right? So much of American politics since the Civil War has been about this question of who can exercise political power, who has mm. not just the full rights of citizenship, but who is a legitimate political actor. And yeah. if you start thinking about kind of race in those terms, less as you know personal prejudice, less as you know a group of people who hate you know black people or Hispanic people or whatnot, but. Uh, who, whose idea of the nation and whose idea of who is a legitimate political actor is tied to race, tied to religion, right? Sort of white Christians are those who have the right to rule, the right to govern. Mm. Then I think mm. things become a, a bit more intelligible. Yeah. Well, also, it's intelligible when you look at the imagery from last week. The guy walking through the Capitol with the Confederate flag, the noose outside of the Capitol. Some of those folks out there wearing T-shirts that read Civil War. I mean, it's it, it's right there for us all to see. You know, you write in your essay that because this angry white mob was not punished in 1874, another mob did the same thing like two years later. And these mobs did things like this for a while in the Reconstruction era South. Uh, it created a sense of impunity, you wrote, by them not being stopped. Um you write now in your essay that if Congress does not respond to Trump's actions, to that mob's actions, uh, you write that if they take no action at all, it will only create a sense of impunity. In 2021, what would that impunity look like to you? I mean, to me, it would look like continuing actions to kind of stoke up, you know, from a rhetoric from the president, from his allies, to stoke um, the sentiments that created the mob to actively stoke a mob. I think it would lead to attempts to do this again. I think it would mean attempts to do this at state capitals, um, which we kind of already saw, kind of groups um, similar to the one that gathered at the U.S. Capitol. I, mean, I, th I think if this isn't dealt with, you'll have a repeat of kind of the exact scenario, but also you'll be sending a signal to would-be mob leaders, right, whether they are private citizens or politicians. You'll be saying essentially that this is a political strategy that you can use. And once, hmm. you know, one rule of just politics in the, in the capital P sense, you know, regardless of the political system, is that once something is possible and feasible, hmm. it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen again. What about those who say, well, Trump's leaving. You know, the election was certified for Joe Biden. He's out of here. And there's others who might say, how was punishing Trump going to make the angry mob that supports him any less mad? You've seen this a lot over the past few days that you, know, you shouldn't impeach Trump. You shouldn't prosecute Trump um, because you'll just make his supporters mad. And I think that's just the wrong way to look at the situation, that you have to separate this question of 
Um, how do we close off this option as like a viable political path for you know politicians or those would be politicians? And how do you deal with the fallout from that? How do you deal with the the supporters of the president? Um, I think the former. There is, to me, no argument that allowing this to kind of just slide by um, is going to result in some sort of you know stable equilibrium going forward. Um, but unity, but unity. <laughs> Here's the thing. Um, so for, first two things. To use a, another 19th century example, during the uh, Andrew Jackson administration, there's the nullification crisis, which is a little arcane. But basically what happens is that South Carolina wants to nullify a federal tariff under the argument that it's unconstitutional. The legislature of South Carolina has determined that it's unconstitutional and they shouldn't have to follow the law. And Jackson, who is you know a conservative, kind of a reactionary figure in a lot of ways, nonetheless is a staunch unionist and rejects this argument and basically threatens to, to hang South Carolina leaders who continue on this path. Um, he wants hmm. to shut down this way of thinking. And the, the rationale for Jackson and his allies, who kind of ran the gamut in the nation, was that if you, if you allow one state to do it, others will follow. Mm. And so they shut it down. And you don't have another similar crisis, right, for 40 years. And I think in the same way, I don't think there's any way to preserve the peaceful transfer of power if you allow one side mm. to storm the Capitol and threaten elected leaders with violence. Once you've gotten to that point, I mean, and this gets to the unity thing, we're already in a situation where there is profound division and crisis, right? Say. Like that, th yeah. the status quo is constitutional and political Division. crisis. And so yes. the question isn't how do we avoid a crisis? It's how do we deal with the crisis we're in right now? And mm. I would say that the way to deal with the crisis we're in right now is to understand that the only way to unity is through division and that we actually do need to divide the country into those who support the nation's constitution all the bedrock elements of American democracy and those who see them as something to be disposed of as they will. And if that ends up splitting, you know, some significant portion of the American population, right, there's no way to avoid that. Stay with us. Jamel Bowie explains the risks of holding off on impeachment and why waiting could allow this to happen again. The world was shocked when pro-Trump extremists stormed and seized the U.S. Capitol. Throughout this tumultuous era, the NPR Politics Podcast has been there every day explaining and making sense of the news. We'll be doing that through the final days of the Trump administration as we all try to understand how this moment happened and what will come next. Let's flash forward to today. We've talked about these historical examples of insurrection throughout America's history and now the big question of this week is how Congress will respond to last week's insurrection at the Capitol. Um, it looks as if, as of this taping on Monday morning, the 11th of January, the House has formally released a resolution for impeachment. It seems like they have the votes to impeach in the House if they want to. 
but there are big questions about what happens after that. Based on what you're seeing and what you know, what do you think happens? Uh, I mean, what I think happens, you know, I, I think that it go it proceeds the way that House leadership has been broadcasting that they there's a resolution passed to urge the vice president to utilize the 25th Amendment that this doesn't <laughs> work, and they introduce articles of impeachment. I assume the House passes them. I don't know, and I can't really predict how the Senate handles that. As far as what I think should happen, I, I kind of think this is all needless theater. I think that on mm. January 7th, articles of impeachment should have been on the floor. I, I think mm. that the calls you saw from members of Congress to urge Pence to use 25th Amendment are essentially an abdication of responsibility. Um, mm. That the Constitution gives Congress the impeachment power for a reason. In that urging the vice president to use 25th Amendment is essentially deferring that responsibility elsewhere. And I'll also say, I mean, they were attacked. <laughs> they, had, they, they had to they, go hide. Right. They, they, this, like, it was it's crazy. It went, they, this mob went into their workplace and attacked them. And so the idea that their response would come from the vice president and not from Congress, the, the chamber that was attacked – you know, arguably, I think so, on behest of the president, is to me, it's, it's ludicrous. <laughs> so then, but, 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 but like to pause you there, why is that the case? You have this legislative body that was literally forced to run and hide by an angry mob. They have in their hands the power to do something. And for days, they dithered over whether they should use that power. What is it about the current state of our politics that that happened or did not happen for a while. Yeah, I, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. I don't have any firm explanations. I have a couple of theories. I think some of it is sort of the natural hesitation of politicians who don't want to get on the wrong side of an issue. Even if this is a place where that shouldn't really matter, I think that's part of it. You know, we talked earlier about this idea that if you hold Trump accountable, you'll just make his supporters more mad. I think this has been a recurring part of not just the reaction of Congress, but the reaction of all political actors to Trump, that there is a fear of directly confronting him. Mm. Um, you saw this during the 2016 Republican primary. And so mm. the refusal to confront ends up becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy um, in that mm. when you don't confront him, he does steamroll over you, knowing that there's not going to be any resistance. Yeah, And... <laughs> I think you also have to consider that the leadership of Congress has been there for 30 or 40 years and that mm. there, I think, is a complacency about what it means to exercise power. That, that I, Sometimes I wonder if our congressional leadership thinks it lives in a different political era than it does, right? That its memories, memories extend all the way back to the 70s and the 80s, to the Reagan revolution, to the backlash to Clinton, to all of these things. In that that's the political world they're operating in, not the one of 2020. Mm. I mean, well, and also this is just so symbolic of Congress. You know, it is a body that for years now has been plagued by inaction. You know, when everyone thinks of Congress, they think of a body that talks a lot and does nothing. So I suppose it's only fitting in some sad, perverse way that even in even when their lives are on the line, they still dither. 
Yeah. They still dither. Yeah. You know, speaking of dithering, there has also been talk that uh, the House might draft articles of impeachment, but then delay having them sent over to the Senate. They could still have the Senate vote on a Trump impeachment even after he leaves office. And if uh, that happened and he's officially convicted in the Senate, he would lose the right to run federal office again, etc. But apparently James Clyburn is now saying that they might want to wait to send it over until after Joe Biden's first 100 days to give him some time to get stuff done. As soon as I hear that, I say to myself, oh, they're never going to do it. They're never going to do it. Yeah, th- this it, it, it all seems too clever by half to me. Um, mm. Just send it over. You know, the Senate can convene a or establish a a separate committee to handle all of this and bring it to the floor at a later date if they want to do that. Um, I, I think it loses its weight and power if you wait. Mm. To borrow an example from criminology, there's a theory about punishment uh, for crime that long jail sentences are useless. They have no deterrent power. What does have deterrent value is certainty of punishment, knowing that if you do X, Y will happen, and swiftness of punishment, that if you do X, Y will happen, and it will happen at Z speed, that actually can deter people from doing X. And I think Mm. that's how you should understand the situation as well, that consequences for Trump don't necessarily have to be as harsh as you can imagine, but they have to be swift and they have to be certain. And the same goes for those lawmakers and others who facilitated this, right? If a majority of the Congress believes, right, that Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, the senators from Missouri and Texas respectively, bear some responsibility for this, then they should be sanctioned swiftly and sanctioned in a way that future Lawmakers know that if they do this, they will face the same kind of punishment. But if it doesn't meet those criteria, then I'm not sure it has very much deterrent power at all. Thanks again to Jamel Bowie, New York Times columnist. All right, listeners, also don't forget we're back this Friday with another episode, more news and other things. And for that Friday episode, per usual, we want to hear the best things that have happened to you all week. And, you know, for me... Those best things contributions are the most valuable in the weeks the news feels the hardest and the toughest and the most sad, which is kind of right now. So do me a favor personally and record yourself telling me the best part of your week and send that voice file to me at samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. All right, listeners, till Friday, thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders, and we'll talk soon.